Our text is Luke 4, verses 42 and 43. In particular, verse 43, where we read these words. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus says, For I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. There are not many musts in life. There are, in fact, fewer than we actually think. This idea came to the fore when uh, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, uh, confronted a businessman in his day who was making compromises in terms of Christian ethics in the context of his business. He was compromising in order to get ahead. He was compromising principles in order to uh, make a success of his business. He was engaging in forms of idolatry in order that uh, his business would succeed. And Tertullian confronted him with the issue and challenged him and uh, spoke of his sin and rebuked him. And the man defended himself, saying that this was really necessary. He says, well, he says, after all, I must live. And Tertullian's response was, must you? What he's saying is that it's more important that you obey God than that you live. It's wrong to say, I must live. It's right to say, I must obey God. See, yes, there are not many musts in this world. There are fewer than we think. It is a wise person who knows whether a perceived necessity is a true necessity. But there's not much wisdom in the world, is there? And less wisdom in the church than there should be. For the Lord Jesus, there was one necessity that governed his life and controlled his existence. It was the necessity of doing God's holy will. Hebrews 10.7, these are words put into the mouth of Messiah. And this is what Messiah said. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so that's the controlling directive in Jesus' life. He has come to do the will of God. That's the necessity for the Lord Jesus. And as a result of that, there are a number of necessary things that follow as a result. He must do the will of God, and so consequently, he must do a number of other things. And we are confronted with one of those necessary things in our text. I must preach the good news. That's because God has sent me for that purpose, and a number of other elements are to be found in that purpose as well. 
Now, this is just one little Greek word. When we read Jesus saying, I must preach the gospel, the word must is just a very little Greek word. Three letters, D-E-I. It's the, the word day. I must preach. And you find that word all over the writings of Luke. Luke writes Luke, and Luke writes Acts. And all over Luke and Acts, you find this little word, day. And one writer describes the significance of this word in this way. He says, my argument is that the use of day, D-E-I, in the third gospel and Acts, follows a pattern of divine oughtness. O-U-G-H-T, oughtness. This ought to be done. This must be done. So there, this word in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts follows a pattern of divine oughtness and of human ought to be done. This is because the narratives attached to this little word day by Luke in the life of Jesus is not only a demand upon his life, but also upon the community of believers due to God's expectation of obedience to his revealed plan and will. And what that writer is saying is this, that there is in the life of Jesus an oughtness. There is a demand placed upon Jesus. This must be done. And these things ought to be done and must be done in your life. Because that's the plan of God. Given the fact that you and I are part of his church and part of his body, that same sense of ought is incumbent on us. And we live under divine authority and command, and there is a must in our lives. There are things that must be done by us because we belong to Jesus. So this is a very significant word, this word must. And when we read Jesus saying, I must do this, we need to think about that. Well, we're going to think about that this morning, and I'm going to try and describe to you uh, something of the significance of this word must. And the first thing I want to say to you is that God's musts are gracious. God's musts are gracious. Perhaps you think if there's any kind of responsibility, you must do this. You think, well, that's a bit of a drag, isn't it? North Americans, by nature... In fact, humans by nature don't like a sense of authority, don't like authority over them. But in fact, when you come to the Bible and you think about this must of God, uh, God's musts are gracious. Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must, same word, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 24, 7, Jesus says, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. On the third day, he will rise. The Son of Man must. The Son of Man must die. But you pause and you step back and you say, Well, no, he doesn't have to. He doesn't really have to. God, you see, doesn't have to save. Jesus doesn't have to come. There is no obligation on God to save anyone. And God could justly have done absolutely nothing 
to save anyone, and he could have justly sent everybody to hell. Christianity doesn't have to exist. There didn't have to be a Christian faith. There didn't have to be a Bethlehem or a Calvary. These things didn't have to be. The reason that there is a Christianity is simply because that was pleasing to God. It's simply because God chose sovereignly to do it. There was no obligation. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The New King James translates that even better according to the good pleasure of his will. The reason there is a Christianity is because that was the good pleasure of God. God wasn't obeying some command that is higher than himself. No, when he sends Jesus, he does it by his good pleasure. Philippians 2 and verses 12 and 13. Just turn there for a moment. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And there we find this same idea. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So why is God bringing about this work of salvation in your life? Well, it's because that was his good pleasure, not because it was incumbent on him, but because that is what he wanted to do. So imagine for a moment, or try to imagine, because it's difficult to imagine, but imagine a world in which there is no Christianity. Imagine a world where there were no prophecies about the coming of Messiah. When the fall happened, God did not seek out Adam and promise that there will be a Messiah. God made no prediction of the crushing of the head of a serpent by the man of his own choosing. There was no prophecy. There ultimately would be no Christmas and there was no Easter because there was no Jesus to die upon a cross. There's no demonstration par excellence of the love of God in Bethlehem and on the cross of Calvary. And consequently, there's no hope. There's no hope for fallen humanity, no hope for you. No prospect that you could be forgiven of any of your sins, let alone all of your sins. There's no deliverance. There's no deliverer come to rescue you. There's no hope of ever finding peace. There's no hope of ever finding a refuge for your soul in this world. And this life then would be seemingly endless pain. And the next life would be literally endless punishment. And that's all that life would be. There would be no mitigating circumstances in life, no common grace to ease the burden and the pain of sin in this world and to ease the awful consequences of human wickedness. None of that. That could 
so easily have been our experience. Because God was under no obligation to save. And so then, this verse never happens. We never read this verse because Jesus never says it because he wouldn't be here and he would never say, I must preach the good news. Well, they wouldn't be good news either. So what I'm saying to you is when you read this, you read, I must preach the good news. That reminds us. It didn't have to be like that. It's only like that because of grace. It's only like that because God by his good pleasure, chose that it would be so and chose to save you and enable you to participate in these good things, to taste and see how good God is. So God's musts are gracious. Secondly, God's musts are certain. Uh, I've said this, and and you've said this. Uh, I must be there by 10. Or you say, I must get this thing finished. And then really, our words fall to the ground, because you and I, we say, well, I have to do this, but you can't. That's never the case with God. And when God says it must be, it will be. And when God says it shall be, it cannot but happen. Because God is the sovereign God. Just turn for a moment to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Very interesting verse. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Revelation 13 and verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not not been written uh, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, of course, right? And so it says here in verse 8 that... uh, All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now think of the phrase, before the foundation of the world. Now is that connected with the Lamb who was slain? Or is it connected with those whose names were not written? Okay, that's the question. Now, the ESV says it's connected with those whose names were not written. The New King James connects it with the Lamb slain. So the New King James says, the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. The ESV says, those whose names were not written from before the foundation of the world. You see the difference there? Now, who's right? Well, I would take my stand with the New King James. A very prominent Greek scholar by the name of Robert Mounts says, it is better to follow the order of the Greek syntax and read the lamb that has been slain before the foundation of the world. So I'm saying to you, well, he's right, and the New King James is the best way to translate this. Now, 
What that means then is this, that the death of the Lord Jesus for the salvation of sinners was so certain that this text refers to it as Jesus who was slain from before the foundation of the world. I mean, it hadn't actually happened, didn't happen until he was on the cross on Calvary, but it was so sure to happen that you could speak about it in this way, as if it had already happened. He's the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. It's the same way in which we are spoken of in Romans 8, 29, and 30 as those who have been glorified. We obviously have not been glorified. We know the state of our bones. We haven't been glorified, but we will be. And Paul in Romans 8 could talk about us as if we've already been glorified because it's such a sure thing. And the reason it is such a sure thing is because our God is both sovereign and faithful. And when God says he will do something, he will do it. He will do it because he's faithful and he stands by his word and he cannot but do what he has said he would do. We read about this, we heard these words earlier. God says, I am God, there is no other, I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. See what God's saying? He's saying, I can predict what's happening, not because I foresaw it, but because I planned it. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. So the reason God can prophesy is because he planned, not because he foresaw. So God's musts are absolutely certain. When God says this must happen, it'll happen. Now, you see, the lesson for us is that's tremendously encouraging. That's a wonderful encouragement. You go through life now with your hope and confidence fixed on a God who, when he says something, it will be. When he promises something, it will be fulfilled. His musts are certain. So when we read in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, and the Gospel must, there's the same word again, the gospel must be first be proclaimed to all nations. Well, that has to take place. Sometimes you think about the amount of people in the world. You think about the hardness of the hearts of people in the world. You think about the laziness and the lethargy of Christians in the world. You think about how enticed the Christian church is by the things of the world, and you think, how on earth does the gospel get preached to this world? And the Lord Jesus says, the gospel must be preached to all nations. So we know then that all nations will inevitably hear the gospel preached to them. That must happen. It's, this idea is also true of all promises that God gives. We read, for instance, in Philippians uh, chapter 3, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. My God shall. When the Bible says God shall do this, uh, God will do this. He must 
meet your needs. That's what he promises. That's what he declares. Must be done. So when you go into the week this week, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, that God must meet all your need according to his glorious riches in Christ. That's a wonderful context in which to live. And those are just two of how many promises God gives to his people. God's musts are certain. Thirdly, God's musts are saving. God's musts are saving. Jesus says, I must preach the good news. What good news? Well, the good news that he must provide, because that's part of the plan. There must be a gospel. There must be good news to preach to the world. So Jesus must provide the good news. He must accomplish his work. He must accomplish it. Otherwise, he can't preach the good news unless he's going to accomplish the good news. There's only one person in all the universe who can save us. Acts 4.12 talks about that. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Same word. It's only one, and that's the Lord Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, again, in Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things. In Luke 17.25, he must be rejected by this generation. Luke 24.7, he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And the Bible says that He must be resurrected. Because if he's not resurrected, the sacrifice hasn't been accepted, and we are still in our sins. That's what Paul says uh, says that in 1 Corinthians 15. In John 20, verse 9, Jesus says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? When it says, was it not necessary, that's the same word as in our text. Wasn't it necessary that Jesus should suffer and be raised so that he can enter into his glory? Absolutely necessary. He has to die and he has to be raised from the dead so that there can be good news for us. And so Jesus must accomplish his work. But also, he must apply his work. He must apply his work. Jesus has to get the gospel to you. Jesus has to get the gospel to you. And when he gets the gospel to you, the Spirit applies that gospel to you so you can be saved. He must get the gospel to Zacchaeus, you see. And we read later on in Luke, Luke 19, verse 5, Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and get down. I must stay at your house today. I must be in your home today. Why is that? Well, he can bring the gospel to him, you see. He can bring the word of salvation to him so he can be saved. In John 4, in verse 4, it says, He needed to go through Samaria. Jesus must go through Samaria. Same word. Why must he go through Samaria? Well, there's a woman waiting at the well. And he has a divinely ordained appointment with that woman. He must bring her the gospel so she can be saved. He must bring her the gospel so that the Spirit can take that saving work that he will accomplish and apply it to her so she can be saved. 
how did the gospel come to you? You've heard the gospel, and, and you believed in the gospel, and you were saved because you trusted in Jesus. How did the gospel come to you? Well, really, it was a great stroke of luck. I mean, I just... No, it was the plan of God. Jesus must bring the gospel to you. So you end up in this country, in this family. You landed at this church. You heard this message. Some Christian came along and said this to you. Some Christian, maybe it's your parents, maybe someone else, maybe it's even a non-Christian, gave you a Bible and you read it and you heard the good news. God sovereignly brought the gospel to you so that you heard it and were saved. Jesus must accomplish his work and Jesus must apply his work and he did it in your life. He brought the gospel to you and by the grace of God you believed. Well, God's musts are saving. How do you respond to this? Well, you respond by appreciating the love of God. You respond by appreciating the love of God, you see. Not everybody in this world enjoys the love of God the way you do. Not everybody in this world basks in the glow of being loved by God. One of the very strident atheists of our generation was a man named Christopher Hitchens, and in his last publication before he died in 2011... He's talking about how he contracted cancer and began to wrestle with why he contracted cancer. And he says this. He says, to the dumb question, why me? Now, why did I get cancer? To the dumb question, why me? The cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, why not? See, that's the universe in which he lives. There's no love of God there. It's a cold and dark universe that says, well, you know, you're questioning why you suffer? Well, why not? This is just blind chance. At the height of his career, at the height of his fame, and probably at the height of his powers, Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel went to a psychiatrist when he was in California, and he said to the psychiatrist, And he's now reporting this. He says, I said to the psychiatrist, I'm here because given all the facts of my life, given the fact that I'm young, I'm in good health, I'm famous, I have talent, I have money, given all these facts, I want to know why I am unhappy. I can't write anymore. He says, I've got serious writer's block, and this is the first time I can't seem to overcome it. And I want you to explain to me why I am so unhappy when I have everything. How is it that I'm not happy? And the psychiatrist couldn't help him, and then he went back to his hotel and he wrote this song, which has never seen the light of day. And from that song come these words, I go to a famous physician, I sleep in a local hotel. From what I can see of the people like me, we get better, but we never get well. I'm saying to you people, they're not like you. They're not happy like you. They've not tasted the love of God like you. And it didn't have to be. It's only that way because God loved you, being gracious to you. So appreciate the love of God and receive the love of God. Now receive the love of God. 
I think, I think I've quoted Lady Gaga once to you. I'm going to throw caution to the wind. I'm going to quote Lady Gaga a second time to you. She has a song, I use the word loosely, she has a song called, um, I think it's called, I Am the Way I Am or something like that. Not memorized it. She says, my mama, I'm getting nervous quoting Lady Gaga to you. She says, my mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, said she, because he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up high, girl, you'll, you'll go far. Listen to me when I say, I'm beautiful in my way, because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself, and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. We're going to leave aside the fact that's just horrible poetry and that the song is musically challenged and just say that the theology is the worst part of it. If you're not a Christian, you are not on the right track. And you're on the road to hell. And you need divine intervention. Jesus says... He talks about the good tree and the bad tree in Luke chapter 6. He says the good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. And the Bible says if you're not a Christian, you're a bad tree. You bear bad fruit. You're going to be cut down. God's going to send you to hell. You need a radical intervention from God. You need a heart, a spiritual heart transplant. Jesus said, you must, same word, you must be born again. You can't just keep floating along and thinking you'll be all right. And if there is a God, you know, he's sure to accept me. The Bible says, absolutely not. You must be born again. There has to be something radical happen to you. Only God can do it. Because when Jesus says, you must be born again, it really also means you must be born from above. So what do you need to do? Well, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Receive the grace of God. Receive the love of God. Receive the Lord Jesus. Ask him to save you and you'll be saved. You see, God's musts are saving. There's hope. There's forgiveness in Jesus. Fourthly, God's musts are sobering. God's musts are sobering. Jesus must suffer. Otherwise, salvation will not be accomplished. And the saints, you and I, must suffer. Otherwise, the gospel will not be applied. God says to uh, Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9, 15, and 16, well, he says to uh, one of his servants, he says, go and minister to Saul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see how he ties it together? Saul, soon to be Paul, must suffer. How and why? 
for the sake of my name. He has to go and preach, and when he preaches, he will suffer. In Colossians 1, 24 and 25, Paul talks about the fact that we have to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, Jesus suffered for the accomplishing of salvation. There's nothing lacking in that suffering. He said, it's finished. So there's nothing lacking in the saving suffering of Jesus. But Paul says, we will suffer to spread the good news. And that's where something is lacking. The saints have to step in now and suffer as they preach the gospel. Says the Lord Jesus Christ. God's musts are sobering. Jesus must suffer to accomplish salvation. The church must suffer to apply salvation. Jesus' sufferings are perfect. That's why he accomplished salvation. Our suffering, we suffer in an ongoing way as we try by the grace of God to announce the gospel so that the Spirit will apply the gospel and save sinners. So this is, this is why life is hard for us. Your life is hard. It's not easy being a Christian in North America. It's not easy announcing to the world in which we live that they need to be saved. It's not easy to tell people that you work with, tell family who are in a state of unbelief, that they're sinners and they need to be saved. It's hard to do that because they don't respond well. We live in a world and we live amongst people who say, well, there's more than one truth. We know Jesus is the truth. They say, well, there's more than one truth. They say to us, there are more than two genders. They say, you think there's a God? There really isn't a God at all. And they say, uh, you need to be loving, but if you disagree with me, you're a bigot. Well, they say things like this, and you have to deal with this on a regular basis. But you're okay to, de- to deal with it. You don't mind suffering I'll say that again. You don't mind suffering because you know about this other text, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's that word again. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The people you witness to, the people you get the gospel to, that give you a hard time, they must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. They can say God doesn't exist till kingdom come, but they'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so you're willing to put up with the little suffering to get the gospel to them. God's words are sobering. God's musts are sobering. Number five, and we've only got one more. We'll get through this really quickly. God's musts, number five, are stirring. God's musts are stirring. When we read the musts of Jesus' life, we find that it's stirred to action. Jesus, for instance, must preach, and so must we. Our text tells us, Jesus says it himself, I must preach the good news to other towns. And he does, and so must we. We must go into all the world and preach the gospel. We must go and tell them. We must go and pass on propositional truth to them. We must go and tell them information. It's not enough to be nice to them. It's not enough for us to be kind to them. It's not enough for us to show the, the love of Jesus by good deeds. It's not enough to do that. 
They have to learn something from us. We have to take this information to people around us. We have to be witnesses for Jesus and testify about the good news. We have to try and get it around the world, and we try to do so through, through Wycliffe and through Carey and other means. But we have to get the message to them. Jesus must preach, and so must we. You don't want to be a, a Basenji Christian. You know what a Basenji is? I just learned this this week. A Basenji is a type of dog. It's the, it's the one dog that doesn't bark. There's something strange about its larynx so that it doesn't bark. It makes a sound. I heard it on YouTube, fount of so much information and wisdom. And I heard it, and it sounds more like a whiny yodel. Sounds terrible. It's not worthy of the name Bark. That's why they say this is the one dog that doesn't bark. You don't want to be the one Christian who's not speaking up for Jesus. You don't want to be a Basenji Christian. You, you have the good news, but you don't tell them. You keep it to yourself. You don't bark. You're, you're just quiet. No, we, we know that Jesus must, wit, must preach, and so must we. And, and then Jesus must do good, and so must we. Jesus must do good, and so must we. He comes to do the will of God. What is the will of God? Well, uh, to save his people, and then to fulfill all the responsibilities God has given him. So we read in Acts 10.38, he went about doing good and healing. That's how he sums up the life of Jesus. He went about doing good and healing. The greatest good is what he did for us on Calvary. But all his life he does good. So must we. When he's 12, he says, don't you know, I must be about my father's business. From when he's 12 years old, he knows, I must be doing what God wants me to do. I must be going about doing good. His people as well. You and I. Titus says, his people must be zealous for good works. Zealous, not my arm got twisted, they backed me into a corner, couldn't slither out, so I did that good thing. Now I'm better equipped to avoid it the next time they approach me. No, no. You're zealous. Like, what can I do to help? The zealous fellow or lady says, what can I do? How... How can I be of assistance? The zealous Christian follows in the footsteps of the Earl of Shaftesbury. If you haven't read about him, you should. When he was 26, he said this. This was like his mission statement for his life. He said, I want, to do, he said, I want nothing but usefulness to God and my country. And oh my, when you read his life, you'll find out that God enabled him to fulfill that mission statement. But, but is that what you think? Is that how you live? Is that your mission statement? Is that how you approach life? I want to be useful to God, to my country, to my church, to my family, to my friends, in my workplace, at my school, in whatever context I am to be found I want to be useful for the glory of God and for the benefit of all who are around me. 
You want to be described like this when you die. How are they going to describe you when you die? When they stand up to do your eulogy, to speak well of you, can they speak well of you because you've done well? They said of Jehoiada when he died, they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel toward God and his house. God's words. Oh, God's words are stirring. God's musts are stirring. And lastly, God's musts are hopeful. God's musts are hopeful. As it has been for Two or three decades now, when Gord does a children's talk, there's almost inevitably a tie-in to the message. Somehow, we never talk about it and never plan it ahead of time, but somehow it's there. God's musts are hopeful. When you read the musts of God in the Bible, they inject hope into your veins. You know, you're weary, your arms are hanging down, and your knees are weak, and it's difficult to put one foot in front of another, but then you read, oh, God's musts in the Bible, and it injects hope into you like a shot of adrenaline, and you're ready to go, and you're ready to face another week, and go right back into work, face that home trouble situation, because God's musts, they inject hope into your veins. And hope in the Bible is not, you know, I hope that works out. Don't think it will, but I'm, I'm hoping against hope. That, you know, in the Bible, hope is blazing certainty about the good that will come. Let me give you one such verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, and beginning at verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15. Why am I finding it hard to locate? There it is. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, and the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And so it must happen. The word is repeated. Our favorite word in this sermon is repeated twice, just for emphasis. Must. This must happen. The perishable must put on imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. And so, yes, your body will be perfect. You will have a body like the glorious body of Jesus. And and that's why Hugh McHale died the way he did, and you can die the same way. Hugh McHale was one of the covenanters, and he died in 1666 at the age of 26, hung by the neck till he was dead. For what reason? Because he was a Christian, faithful in preaching the word of of God. So when he's standing on the scaffold, he's about to be hung. This is what he says. Now I leave off speaking any more to created things, and I begin my communion with God, which shall never be broken off. Farewell, father and mother. 
friends and relations. Farewell, the world and all delights. Farewell, meat and drink. Farewell, sun, moon, and stars. Welcome, God and Father. Welcome, sweet Lord Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Welcome, blessed Spirit of grace, the God of all consolation. Welcome, glory. Welcome, eternal life. Welcome, death. God's musts are gracious, certain, saving, stirring, and hopeful. And so we rest in him. Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise. All my times are in thy hands, all events at thy command. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, bless your word to us. Help us to love and to trust this God and walk before him as men and women and young people of faith for the honor and the glory of Christ, in whose names we pray, in whose name we pray. Amen. By the way, what I said.